Uh, Tyler is going to be preaching the message today, but I, I want to do just briefly introduce the series that we'll be doing. He's kicking it off, and then I will pick this up next week. Uh, all of our passages will come from the book of Matthew, so we're going to look at characters and texts from the book of Matthew, uh, thinking about this idea of practicing hope and expectation. Here's a way to think about it. <clears throat> Um, I, I'm certain any age in this room has lived mostly long enough, if, unless you're a baby, but even that you'd learn pretty quickly, that life does not go according to our plans sometimes. Is that not true? Doesn't always go the way we script it out. And, and I used to think when I was little that that was just circumstances outside of me. What I learned um, quicker than I wanted to is that those in charge would often not give me exactly what I wanted because they had some bigger picture in their mind. They knew better. Or often they were teaching me something I hated. My, my, one of my least favorite four-letter words is the word wait. <laughs> Here's the thing. I, I didn't realize when I was a young child, and this still is in my life as an adult, we have to learn how to hope. That's something we actually learn. We have to learn how to hope. We have to learn how to practice expectation. And what's beautiful, you've done this for several years, there's an entire season in the rhythm of, of people who have been following Jesus for hundreds and hundreds of years. There's a whole season where you literally practice hope. It is called Advent. Again, you guys did this before I came here. I'm happy to step into this tradition. But recognizing the four weeks leading up to Christmas, uh, we don't just put trees up and all that kind of stuff. We actually... Think about this as a time to prepare our hearts for the one who advents. You might say, what is this weird word, advent? It's just the Latin word for a word that comes in the Bible. The word to arrive, to show up, or to come. Let me give you one advent passage. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Look, he is adventing with the clouds. It's not literally what it says. He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Look at verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, who is, and who is to Advent. <laughs> the one who is, who was, and is to come. Here's the thing when we think about what Advent is about. Advent is practicing the worship of a God who actually shows up. And often people think the weeks leading up to Christmas is a time where we just think about the first Advent, where Jesus comes as a baby. That is not the whole point. We're practicing the worship of a God who advents, period. He actually shows up. Yes, as a child in the incarnation, but as you'll see in the weeks leading up in these passages from Matthew, we're actually preparing our hearts for the one who's going to advent again. And he's going to come back not as a baby, but as the reigning king that he is. So here's a simple way to think about it. In this time, I want us to think about preparing our hearts for the God who shows up. He did show up. He will show up again. And he will show up in our everyday lives. What if we prepare our hearts for that? And so here's a simple symbol that we use. It's been used for years. Um, here's the picture. Jesus literally said, I am the light of the world. And so we're going to kind of symbolically think about that very simply by lighting candles. Uh, the white candle represents the coming of God into the world in the presence of Jesus. And so encourage you to be here on our Christmas Eve service. That's when we light that candle and we blow out the doors that Jesus has come in the world. But leading up to that, we will increasingly bring light. And you have been to our, our, uh, our services before on Christmas Eve. We will literally fill this place with light. That's the point. But we start in the darkness. We light one candle each week as we lead up. Purple is the color of Jesus and his royalty. Uh, 
the pink one will come a couple weeks in where we're longing for hope a little bit more. So it's a turn to hope and joy. And then lastly, the white candle. So when we do this, I'm going to just quickly pray and then Tyler will preach into this. I want you to think about as we light these candles, a great way to practice Advent is to think about something in this world that isn't right. Where do we need hope? Something in your heart that isn't right. And we're just asking in these weeks leading up to Jesus coming into the world, we know he's here. God, what do you need to do in my heart and my life to make me open to you showing up again? So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for being a God who shows up again and again. You were, you are, and you are to come. You are the king already, but there's going to be a time where you come and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. So we pray that you prepare our hearts now for that day and for every day for you to reign as king. And we ask you to bless Tyler, his incredible giftedness as he opens up the word of God and we prepare our hearts for your coming. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you, Tyler. All right. Good morning. We'll be in Matthew 24. This morning, and kind of as Dean said, that was kind of a good elaborate way to say, I did not pick this passage. This passage was picked for me, not even by Dean, but by a a lectionary of the historic church in which the church has looked at the season of Advent in both the, the first and second coming of Christ. So this morning, we're talking about the second coming. So Merry Christmas. It's probably the first time you've ever done that for many of you. Talk and think and preach about the second coming as we look forward to Christmas. I think for a lot of people, that's the last thing you'd want to think about as we approach Christmas, is the second coming. Because it seems to be that we're supposed to focus on the first coming. But the church historically hasn't really teased those apart too much. The first coming has anticipated the second coming. They're kind of one in the same. So we'll be in Matthew 24, verses 36 through 51. Also, I should clarify, as I said with the slideshow, I had slides, I had the passages on the slides and a few pictures that would help. Those have vanished somehow. Um, I'll let you guess who did that one, because they synced fine with my laptop and we get here and they never existed. Uh, So you'll have to follow along in your Bible a little bit more closely this morning. It says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in one field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know. 
and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Merry Christmas. So the first thing you kind of have to do with this passage is I have to, what I say is I have to teach it before I can preach it. Because clearly there's a lot going on in this passage, and this is kind of the, the middle passage of a big section of Scripture uh, where Christ has started already this continuum of thought, and he will continue that thought through multiple parables coming. The parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the wedding banquet. Um, and in this parable right here, he's continuing this thought about anticipating these seconds coming, and this is just a glimpse into the heart of it. But there's a lot going on here. What you'll learn if you read prophecy for some time, meaning Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, you'll, you'll recognize the idea of the near-far prophecy. Some of you probably already know that. It's the idea in the prophets that they're looking at two or three events with much time between all three of them, but they're talking about it as if it's one thing. The way it's often portrayed is like looking at a mountain range. Right? You look at a mountain range, some of the mountains are far, some are close, the peaks go up to the same height, but from your perspective, you can't tell how much space is between the mountains. You just see a beautiful mountain range. Or imagine a painting of a mountain range. Some mountains look far because of the way the artist paints them. Some mountains look close, but it's all in a two-dimensional plane. You're just, there's just a canvas. There's not actual depth to it, and that's how it is with the prophets sometimes. They will talk about their own situation, they'll talk about the near future, and they'll talk about the distant future, and interweave them almost seamlessly to where you can't even tell what's going on. So Ezekiel, for example, will describe the downfall of Babylon in terms of the judgment of the whole earth, because he's not teasing those apart too much, he's looking at them as the same thing. Think of two planes of glass right on top of each other. You're looking through both, but you can't tell you're looking through both. Or think about going to the eye doctor. One eye, as they're testing your vision, is magnified to one magnification, and the other is a different. And if you just close one eye and look through the other, it looks off. But when you look through both eyes, then you can see clearly, right? That's the, the eye doctor's goal, is to get you to see clearly with both eyes, not just have a really strong right eye, and he doesn't really care about your left eye. And so it is with the prophets, near, far prophecy, sometimes called prophetic telescoping. Because as a telescope does, it brings something into the future far off and brings it right up close to your eye. You can't tell how far away it is through a telescope. I bring that up because it's exactly what Christ is doing. The same way that Daniel or Ezekiel might look to their own present situation and see the, uh, the hostility of Babylon... They may see the soon-coming destruction of Babylon, but, but look even beyond that to the coming and second coming of Christ and paint it all as the judgment of the earth. Christ is doing the same thing. That's why this passage is not so simple as, oh, everything's about the second coming, we can move on now. It's actually not quite that easy. What Christ is doing is he's sitting on the Mount of Olives overlooking the Temple Mount. That is the picture that was taken away from me when the slideshow disappeared. Because when it says Christ sat on the Mount of Olives, well, there's a beautiful view from the Mount of Olives. And the main attraction is the temple itself. And so in overlooking this temple, what he's doing is he's prophesying the coming destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It occurred to me recently that no one really cares about that. 
I do, and you get like, oh yeah, he's so excited about the destruction of the temple. But what I realize is Christ put so much emphasis on the destruction of the temple. So much of his ministry is prophesying the destruction of the temple. So much so that he stakes his whole reputation on it. But we honestly couldn't care less. Some people don't even know the temple was destroyed. You're like, what's in Jerusalem now? I thought there was still a temple there where they offer sacrifices. No, that's been gone since 70 AD, almost 2,000 years. This was hugely important to Christ, the fact that within a generation this temple would be destroyed. But Christ is acting as a prophet. So he's looking at his present situation, saying the day is coming when God will pour out judgment on Jerusalem for their unfaithfulness. But he's painting it through the lens of the final judgment when God will judge the whole earth. Lest you think this is all God cares about is this tiny temple, let me remind you God is coming to judge the whole earth the way he's coming to judge this temple. So it can seem like he's talking about both at once. That's because Christ is a good prophet. He's speaking just like Ezekiel or Daniel or Isaiah. You can see this in verse 34 where he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. A generation in the Bible is 40 years. So what Christ does is put a 40-year shot clock on the destruction of the temple. He says, let it be known that 40 years in this place will come crumbling down, and then you'll know who I am. He's acting as a type of Jonah. Jonah, the prophet. Jonah went around Nineveh saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And Christ is going into Jerusalem saying, 40 years in Jerusalem will come crashing down. And woe to you if you are pregnant or nursing in those days because you won't be able to get out of the city fast enough when the Roman army comes in. Yet he's portraying it as both the destruction of Jerusalem looking forward to the coming of the Son of Man to judge the earth. They're not too far apart when God judges his people. You can see verse 35, and this is the verse people go, well, I don't know about that. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That is Christ himself saying, let it be known, I'm staking my whole reputation, my whole ministry on this fact, that the temple will be destroyed. But it says heaven and earth will pass away. Surely he's talking about the end of the space-time universe. Well, the problem with that is the Bible. Because if you read the rest of the Bible, heaven and earth do not pass away. Heaven and earth become one and renewed. So Christ has really bad eschatology, if that's what he's saying. But it matters where he's standing. Again, you'll see that he's standing on the Mount of Olives in verse 3 of that same chapter, which matters. Because overlooking the temple, he says, heaven and earth will pass away. But where's heaven and earth? All throughout the Bible, the temple is heaven and earth. There's images of heaven in the temple. And then when we get scenes of heaven, we get images of earth in heaven. The temple is where heaven meets earth. It's the heaven and earth place. So Christ acting prophetically is saying, the heaven and earth place will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Which is a way to say, this temple one day will be destroyed, but you can validate my ministry on the fact that for 2,000 years, the church will still be keeping my words. Because what was the judgment for when Israel went to Babylon? 70 years the temple was destroyed? So God could prove his reputation to his own people? What if I told you for 2,000 years the temple was gone? It, it brings me hope 
And you'll have to look this up on your own. You look up an image of Jerusalem, of the Temple Mount, and sitting there today is a Muslim mosque. Don't let that fill you with sadness. That should make you go, yes. Christ is who he said he was. Because there is no temple there, and his words have yet to pass away. That should give you hope that Christ is exactly who he said he is. The world-leading New Testament scholar put it this way, saying Christ staked his whole ministry, his whole reputation on the fact that the temple would be destroyed within 40 years. This does matter. It's not just a matter of personal interest. It's a matter of what Christ said his reputation is staked on. We can have hope that he is who he said he was. Then we can move into verse 36 to 43. These (laughs) beloved verses. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in one field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken and the other left. And these verses have been used throughout history to justify a a rapture, and I don't want to get into that. Went through that for years in seminary, not interested in talking about it anymore, I'll be honest. But the point is, I don't think he's talking about this moment like the Left Behind novels where believers will be sucked up to heaven and these sad unbelievers will be left on earth. That's really a post-Civil War idea that was made up after the tragedies of the Civil War where this world got so bad, there's no way God could redeem this world. He must suck us up to heaven and take us beyond and this world will be destroyed. But what he's saying is, again, two lenses. The Roman invasion will be so swift against Jerusalem that they don't discriminate for who they kill. You stay in the field, the Romans might sweep you up and leave your brother behind. You try to go back into the city to fight, they're going to take you and leave your family. That's how swift it will be. And elsewhere in Luke, he'll say, if you're on the rooftop and you see them coming, don't go down into the house even grab anything. It's a joke saying, if you see the Roman army come, jump off your house, the roof of your house, and take off. Because you won't have time to get out of the city if you wait till they come. But he's also portraying a farther second coming. When the Son of Man returns, there will be this splitting and division of the righteous and the unrighteous. There won't be this mixing together as we are now of the righteous and the unrighteous all together. No, the day is coming when one will be taken away to judgment, the other left to experience the blessing of Christ. You can see that because he says it's like the days of Noah in verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, what happened in the days of Noah? We all know the story where the righteous Noah was sucked up to heaven. No, that's not what happened. The point is it's the wicked who are swept away and the righteous, faithful to God, who are preserved. No one was flying away to heaven. It was they stay on earth and the wicked are swept away and separated. He's looking through two lenses, the destruction of the temple and the return of the Son of Man. But his point either way is the same. Whether you disagree or agree, doesn't matter. Let's not get lost in the weeds of eschatology. The point is, his his principle for this passage is the same. When Christ returns, he discriminates on the basis of faith. So don't count it righteousness because you have a Christian family member. Two people will be in one field, one taken and the other left. But Christ, he was my, my brother or my sister. Well, just like the Roman army doesn't check cards when they come to town, the cards that the Son of Man checks is faithfulness. 
If you are faithful, one is taken, the other is left. So the point, whether or not you agree with the destruction of the temple, is the same. And then, as we've been eager to get to, verse 42. So the teaching part is over. I had to teach you all that because my conscience bears witness that I read it that way. I think that's what it's about. That's how it's historically been interpreted. Yet, all of this is so nice because in verse 42, whether or not we agree or disagree, I'm sure for as many people are as in this room, there is equal number of views on the end times. But the point is the principle is the same for all of us regardless if we disagree in verse 42. He says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And in verse 48, but if that wicked servant says to himself, well, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day he does not expect and an hour he does not know. So the point is, whether it's looking toward Jerusalem being destroyed or the return of Christ, the point is the same. We want to be faithful and wise servants from verse 45 as we await the return of our Lord. But how can we be faithful and wise servants? Well, notice what Christ says in verse 43. He would have stayed awake. And then in verse 44, therefore you must also be ready. Those are the two principles repeated again and again and again, not only by Christ in the Gospels, but by Paul and by Peter and by John. Stay awake and be ready. Be watchful. Not, this is how you prepare for the return of Christ. Become an expert in all the finer details of eschatology. Try to predict the date he'll come back so that you can be ready. No, he says, this is how you become an eschatological expert. Be ready. I have sat in classes with quite literally eschatological experts. They can tell me all the finer details of pre-tribulational, pre-millennial rapturous, all that stuff. <laughs> but I think what Christ is saying is the person who is really an expert in eschatology is the one who is ready. It doesn't matter if you can debate the finer details of all your end times views. I will take someone who's actually looking forward to Christ's return as the expert because they actually believe what they say the Bible says. They believe what Christ says. Stay watchful and be ready. <clears throat> but why? Why do we have to be ready? In verse 48, the servant says to himself, my master is delayed. I'm sure you've probably felt that yourself and seen that in our day. Because servants are prone to forget that our master is returning. And as humans, we are so prone to forget he's coming back. You've probably heard that these days. Oh, come on. It's been 2,000 years. You really think Jesus is still coming back? This whole coming back idea. Wasn't it some sort of spiritual return? Wasn't it just a happy story to try to give us encouragement, a way to live? It's been 2,000 years. Come on. But the problem with that is, what came to my mind is, Second Peter, he's writing to the same situation. These believers who feel as if it's been a long time since Christ came back. They're decades from his ascension, by the way. 
So this should be even more applicable 2,000 years later. They're decades from his ascension to go, I don't know, this is taking quite a while in the 60s AD. <laughs> and what he writes to that same situation, these people thinking it's taking a while, he writes, but do not overlook this one fact, that with the Lord one day is as a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward all, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day in the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So you might say it's been 2,000 years, come on, but to Christ it's been 48 hours. We have to accept that his perception of time is different, he's patient. The longer and longer he waits to return, remember it's not because he's negligent in fulfilling his promises, it's because he's patient and he doesn't see time as we do. So it's been 2,000 years to us, but it's been two days to him. And Peter's application is the same. He says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. The reason this matters so much is because, and this is going to sting a little bit. I've kind of gotten used to saying it to myself. Humans are temporally ignorant. Temporally meaning in regards to time. When it comes to time, we are, dare I say, pretty much useless, right? Other than the basic day-to-day -day, um, you know, routines of life, we are horrible. You wait in the doctor's office or waiting room for 30 minutes, and it feels like hours, but you spend three hours of fun with a friend, and it feels like 30 minutes. We can't even perceive three hours correctly, Yet we have the audacity to say, oh, come on, it's been 2,000 years. But sitting in a waiting room feels like an eternity. 18 years of raising a child, I've heard, flies by. You look up and they've graduated and they're getting married. And you're like, they were this small last week. What happened? But 18 years at a job you hate feels like you're suspended in purgatory. We have a horrible perception of time outside the day today. As humans, we are good at knowing when we're hungry and when we're tired, right? We don't really change a whole lot from when we're a baby, right? We just learn to complain and cry less, some of us. But we are really good at knowing when we're hungry and when we're tired because those are dictated by hunger and by the sun. There's a funny experiment I saw where they basically locked this guy in a, it's basically solitary confinement, I'll be honest, but they locked him in a room with no windows, no clock, just a lamp, and he can ask for food whenever he wants. He just can't ask the time. And he basically... For a week, he was in there, and after 72 hours, he had thought it, he thought it had been a week. After 72 hours. After two days, he was eating at 3 a.m., thinking it's lunchtime. And he goes, you know, I want to try to keep my sleep schedule while I'm in here. So he's doing push-ups at 4 a.m., thinking it's the afternoon. And then he's trying to go to bed at, like, like 3 in the morning. He, he has no perception of time after, like, three days of the sun being unseeable. It's funny, but the point is showing we have horrible perceptions of time, or we have really, really, really good perceptions of time when it comes to hunger and tiredness. Because you've probably experienced this. You can set a 7 a.m. alarm, Monday through Friday. Saturday, you don't set an alarm. You wake up at 7.01, even without alarm. Drives me nuts, but we're really, really good at syncing our life with the sun and with our regular patterns. But when it comes to anything longer than the day-to-day, -day, we're basically useless. We are created to be present-minded beings. 
God has created us not to look into the distant future where he is or to look to the distant past where he is. He has created us to be synced up to the present. We are present creatures. No wonder Christ's teaching on anxiety is trying to get you out of the future into the day. Today is enough trouble for itself. You're not good at perceiving the future, and you get so much anxiety when you do. The only person in the future is God. So the remedy to anxiety is saying is bring it back. Be a personal or a present creature as we were created to be. But because we are present-minded creatures, reorienting ourselves around the second coming can be very difficult. Because we're, we're trying to have this idea in our head that it's really close, but we all know it doesn't seem too close, but we're supposed to act like it's close. But every generation so far has acted like it's close, and it hasn't been close at all. But still, that's because we're terrible at perceiving time. It is an act of faith and trust to live as if Christ's return is imminent. So if we believe the master really is coming back, we orient ourselves around his return. And the problem with us, as this parable shows, is our distraction. You see that in verse 48, just like the man in the parable. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, begins to beat his fellow servants, eats and drinks with junkards, the master will come in an hour he does not know. He falls into the typical human trap of distraction and forgetfulness, but those are kind of the same thing. You're distracted, so you forget. He falls into this classic human trap. He gets distracted, and then the immediate outcome of being distracted and forgetful is he begins to indulge in the cares of this world and the passions of the flesh. Well, if my master isn't coming back, then I'll beat who I want, get drunk with who I want, I'll do what I want, because dad's not coming home, so we don't need to clean the home until he's about 30 minutes out. And then you hear a knock on the door, realizing, oh no, dad came home from work early. I think that's such a human idea Christ brings out in this parable. Distraction and forgetfulness, I think, are the main spiritual cancers to 21st century American Christians. It is a cancer to our faith, which is why time and time and time again, Christ gives us the remedy to distraction as being a refocusing on his second coming. We get distracted from Christ and his return, so we get burdened down by the anxieties and cares of the world and the passions of the flesh we give into because we forget he's right around the corner coming back. Or the opposite, we'll go to see him soon. Death can come at any time. You get hit by a train on the way out this morning. And having that meeting with Christ at the forefront of our minds all the time is the remedy to indulging in the passions of the flesh. <clears throat> but in this meantime, Christ's point in this parable is that he did not die and rise and ascend so that in the meantime, waiting for his return, we can indulge in the passions of the flesh while we wait. His meaning is exactly the opposite. That in the meantime, we put to death the deeds of the flesh as we await his second coming. This wasn't just free garbage time waiting for him to come back. The point was while the master's gone, we're waiting for him to come back. We put to death the deeds of the flesh. And you see what happens when he starts saying put to death the deeds of the flesh? Yeah, yeah. something happens with the microphone, I'm telling you. Not a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> you'll see, it keeps happening, you'll see a pattern. <laughs> you laugh now. But the rem so if the problem is forgetfulness, the remedy then is pretty obvious, a refocusing. If Christ is saying this, this servant forgot his master is coming back and got distracted, distracted, then the remedy is a refocusing. 
You're focusing on the return of Christ being ever-present to judge the living and the dead. And when you do, the passions of the flesh don't seem all that powerful anymore. I feel like this is anecdotal, but I think the time people are least likely to sin is a funeral. Just saying. Because you see a casket with a body in it, and suddenly all the passions of the flesh and the cares of the world seem so insignificant because you realize the finiteness of life. And that is the point of the return of Christ. Ushering us into eternity is always around the corner. Whether it's him coming back or whether it's us going to be with him, that eternity is always around the corner. And because we're so bad at perceiving time, it always seems so far away. But we want to have the mind of Christ, seeing it always as imminent. Why is this so important, though? Why does Christ time and time again emphasize this? Why does Paul over and over and over again say, be sober-minded and awake, Christ is coming back, so put the death of deeds of the flesh? Why does Peter say, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at Christ's returns? Be sober-minded, be alert, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Why? Why is it so important? Why can't we just do what we want in the meantime? The reason is, <laughs> the future always shapes the present, Always. I hate to be self-referential, but I have a great example of this in the fact that my wife is eight months pregnant. In the future, here in a month and a half or so, strongly dictates the present, right? Because as much as you can sit around celebrating the fact that she's pregnant, yay, that's so exciting, if you only sit around celebrating the fact that your wife is pregnant and you don't start buying stuff for the baby, you don't start preparing for childbirthing classes, kind of like I'm postponing that until next month, you know, if you don't start doing that, that day will come upon you like a thief in the night, and you don't know the day or hour. So it's no wonder that literally earlier in this chapter in Matthew, Christ calls it the birth pains of the end. Because you don't know, like a woman in labor, when you wake up at 3 a.m. and this came upon you and you weren't expecting it. So woe to you who aren't ready, he's saying. I'm sensing that so much in our life already. You look into the future and it shapes the present. How about another example? This one's a little bit stranger, but I, I, I thought at least you'll remember it. I'm sure we've all heard of date setters. Ever heard of date setters, right? The people who follow some charismatic leader who mines the mysteries of the New Testament and finds random numbers, pulls them together and tells you uh, Christ is coming back on November 28, 2000, whatever. And then followers, what they do is trusting in this great charismatic leader. They empty their bank account. They sell their home. They give away their car. I don't need it. Christ is coming back. And they stand in the middle of Times Square with a countdown timer, all for that day to come and go, because they were wrong. Now, to be very careful with this, I'm not encouraging that. Don't set dates. Christ was abundantly clear on the fact that you shouldn't be looking forward to the actual hours coming back. Don't try to figure that out. It's in vain. He doesn't know. His angels don't know. It's foolish the date set. But the point is, I love that mindset. Because for a moment, as foolish as it is to date set, for a moment, they saw all their resources. They saw all their time, their house, their car, their money, their kids. Everything was seen for a moment in light of the return of Christ. That's exactly the mindset we're supposed to have all the time. All of our stuff is seen in light of his return. Because what happens in the parable is the, master, the servant says, my master is delayed, and now all of this becomes for his own personal fleshly use. His servants become objects instead of people to love in the meantime. 
He can just get drunk with alcohol whenever he, whenever he wants. Everything now becomes to gratify his own desires. So I love the mindset of those date setters that for a moment, everything in our life is oriented around his coming. So it is with a baby on the way. Your time, your money, your energy, your thoughts, your free time is now spent orienting around the imminent future. And I wouldn't be, this, I would not consider this sermon good unless I reminded you of one thing. We have an enemy. This is not just a white knuckle, try to focus better sermon. The point is you have an enemy who sows seeds of distraction. Distraction is that spiritual cancer in our day. At every level of our lives, there is a scheme from the evil one to distract us, to pull us away from what matters. This goes without saying. I don't even say this, but it's helpful to remind ourselves of this. Every waking moment of our day is now spent with something trying to pull us away, whether it's in the center of our living room or living in our pocket. Everything is trying to pull us away from what matters in life and get us distracted and forgetful. And then the passions of the flesh and the burdens and cares of this world seem so great because our minds have now become this small and we're so distracted. I don't think that's accidental. I think that's a scheme of the evil one. We are in an age of distraction and he causes us to forget. He also causes us to forget because I I get that at points in the 20th century there were times when all you would hear sermons about is different views of the second coming. But they were just someone's personal interpretation of how the end times are going to work out, exactly all the finer details of their Bible study. And so now in response to that, you rarely hear about it at all because we're so scared of falling back into that. And what a trap from the evil one. They're both horrible. Super obsession on counting the day and hour when Christ will come back and trying to predict it. Bad. Complete avoidance of thinking about the second coming is also horrendous. That's exactly what the servant in the parable did. Satan has worked hard to distract us. Reason being is because it's at the second coming that we see his downfall. It's at the second coming that death is defeated at the resurrection. It's at his second coming his schemes are over. So I can't imagine he likes it very much. I can't imagine he likes hearing people preach about his own downfall and Christ's triumph over death and sin. He can't like that. So it is an act of spiritual warfare to reorient yourselves around the second coming every day, to remind yourself of Christ's return, is to say and remind yourself every day, Satan will not win this battle. And to remove ourselves from that and distract ourselves is to really say Satan wins in the end. So the calling then is that every aspect of our lives must be conformed to Christ. Every day, every thought, every feeling, everything must be in light of the eternity that's coming when Christ comes back. The point is to focus on his return, and that will be a remedy to the desires of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much um, for this text. Thank you for what you've promised to do in your son, his return, his triumph, his victory, Lord. I pray that we would focus on that. I pray that we would orient ourselves around his second coming, oh Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I got to go. Yeah, I'm sorry.